Hey, it's Drex from This Week Health Cyber and Risk Community, and I want to invite you to our next webinar. It's going to focus on what else? Defending health data. I'll be chatting with experts from Rubrik and Microsoft. Register right now at thisweekhealth.com slash rubric webinar. That's all one string, R-U-B-R-I-K webinar, thisweekhealth.com slash rubric webinar. See you online soon. Today on This Week Health. There's a, a digital equity problem in the North country where we live. There's a lot of challenges with being able to reach people. They just aren't as familiar with the technology. We've had to spend some time working individually with patients to get them on board. What was a, a better fit? They're much better than they were before, but it's been challenging. It's Newsday. My name is Bill Russell. I'm a former CIO for a 16 hospital system and creator of This Week Health, a channel dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engaged. Special thanks to CrowdStrike, Proofpoint, ClearSense, Meditech, Cedar sinai Accelerator, TalkDesk, and Dr. First, who are our Newsday show sponsors for investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. All right, it's Newsday, and we're joined by Daryl Bodner, the Chief Information Officer for North County Health in beautiful New Hampshire. Look at that background. Man, people who are listening on the podcast aren't seeing that background, but Northern New Hampshire is beautiful country, isn't it? It is absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much, Bill, for having me here. It's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. I actually lived in New Hampshire for a year. I didn't know if you knew that. We lived in Wolfboro, New Hampshire, where I got my first job in healthcare, and it was because there was no other jobs available. And I got a job at Huggins Hospital in Wolfboro, New Hampshire. I don't even know if it's there anymore. It was a really small hospital. And essentially, I took it, I was building houses and doing that kind of stuff. And then I took it to utilize some of my computer things. And then I got there and realized they had no computers. So they put me in admissions and I was ad admitting people in the morning and they had one computer sitting there and I'm like, Hey, if I wrote a program, could I admit these people using technology? And they're like, sure. I mean, if you, sure. If you want to develop something. So I developed their admission program and uh, we started generating reports out of it. They're like, Hey, this computer thing, this could really take off. This was back in the, uh, in the late eighties. So oh, that's crazy. impressive. Yeah. Huggins hospital is still there. We've worked on a couple of small projects together as well through some ACO initiatives. Well, tell us a little bit about uh, North Country. It's, it's a great experiment. It was established in 2016 originally, but it's since gone through a few iterations. But it's a collection of three critical access hospitals, similar to Huggins, as you referenced earlier, Androscoggin Valley Hospital, Upper Connecticut Valley Hospital, and Weeks Medical Center. And we also have a home health and hospice branch. And it was, uh, we, we came together collaboratively without a tertiary facility involved. We agreed to be partners. We, we sort of tore down those competition barriers and came together. And uh, it's been doing great. It was the, the vision of, of many people, but we've got some great leadership on board that have worked in systems before. And it's great. I mean, we service all of Coas County in northern New Hampshire, which the population is about 30,000, but it covers 1,800 square miles or so. And we touched the Canadian border, Vermont border, and Maine border. Wow. That's amazing. So here's what I like about this. When we have guests on the show, we get a lot of different perspectives and it's fun to get your perspective. And even some of these stories we may have touched already on the Today Show, but I want to get a little different flavor with talking to you. Uh, let's see. Well, we've, we've got some interesting stories. Let's start with this one. So 
how U.S. healthcare leaders are shifting course to navigate a changing world. And are you guys feeling a lot of a lot of change up there? Did the pandemic impact you a lot? And are you feeling a lot of change in how care is delivered? I think we are now. Initially, we were delayed. A lot of the initial challenges with COVID just didn't make appearances, but they finally did. And we started to see some of the strain on our EDs. And, and we, of course, shut down services like everybody else and, and went through that process. Being critical access hospitals and our reimbursement models a bit, bit different because we're cost reimbursed. It sort of allowed us to survive that a little better than some others. But I think now as we start to look at some of the uh, relief dollars are starting to, uh, to dry up and some of those challenges are starting to be really, really experienced. Your volumes are coming back, but not quite what they did before. And some people are still, still, I think, a little nervous about going out and getting care. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to see that in some of the stories today that there's some predictions in terms of the volumes over the next 10 years, and uh, they're a little different. So I'll give some excerpts on this story. Health system execs are updating strategies to meet new imperatives. Philips' new Future Health Index 2022 report shows their priorities expanding digital transformation, managing a human capital crisis, and closing the equity gap. Okay. And so they start with the human capital crisis. They talk about burnout and technology's role in helping the overburdened staff. And as, as I read this, I'm reminded of another story I saw. There's a lot going on around this, around human capital and around people, staffing shortages and those kind of things. And I saw this week, Peace Health cuts travel nurse budget, struggles with staff shortages. This is a Becker's story that just dropped in my email inbox this morning. A Peace Health Hospital in Springfield, Oregon has begun phasing out travel nurses, resulting in staff shortages that have caused emergency room patients to be boarded in hallways because there aren't enough nurses on the floors and whatnot. But I think it's interesting. This problem is pervasive, isn't it? I mean, even in your area, it's probably a pervasive problem of a shortage of clinical staff and nurses specifically. It is. It absolutely is. We've been struggling with it for quite some time. Nursing primarily, but respiratory therapy, we have imaging. There's a lot of areas that it's impacted. And we've experienced the same thing. And I think that the cost of travel labor when it comes to those is just unsustainable. I think that there clearly probably was some gouging that might have occurred during these processes, people taking advantage of the situation. But it was a true reality for us. So at the end of the day, we've actually taken a different approach or maybe a similar approach. We aren't necessarily getting rid of travel nurses at the expense of delivering some of the care, but we are looking at new and creative ways to be able to offset that demand. And these are some interesting sign-on bonuses, long-term agreements. We're looking at tuition reimbursement for some of these pieces. Some of them have done elsewhere in the country, but some of them are new. And I think you have to look at the overall cost of what your spend is going to be over a year for travel labor. And it's just unsustainable, Bill. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the thing I've heard. I talked to a couple of CFOs and that's the thing I heard is that that line item is just so out of whack right now. And it's pulling the financials for the health system just down across the board. And so it is one of those things that they're trying to get ahead of. And I like some of the creative things you talked about. At the end of the day, I think this will, this will come back to equilibrium, but it will come back to a higher level of equilibrium for the nurses and, and clinical areas where there is more addressing burnout. There's more thought put around schedules, demands during the day. There should be more thought put around 
work-life balance and that kind of stuff. And then compensation, obviously, is one of the things that, uh, that I think we will see a rise. And I'm not sure that that rise will ever go back down. I think some of that might be inflation related, if I thought about it. But I don't think that that rise is going to go back down much either. So let's go back to this story a little bit. So they're addressing burnout. Let me talk to you about this, because I'm always curious. They talk about the digital transformation. And when we talk about digital transformation, and we talk about it a lot on the show, and you listen to the show, when you hear this and you hear, oh, this is what Providence is doing, and this is what Cedars is doing, and this is what New York Presbyterian is doing, how do you translate that into your size organization in your area? I think it scales to some extent. So you know, we just came off a, a collapse, I guess it was, of three uh, three hospitals into a single system. We went with Meditech Expanse. So my two thoughts are is that developing a, a robust and strong governance over how you bring in technology and how it's implemented is very, very powerful. We have a what we call a CEO cabinet, which contains all the leadership, including myself. And we make very, very thoughtful decisions on how things are implemented. And then we also have a clinical group, our clinical information management team, a multidisciplinary team of providers, nurses, all sorts of representation. And that's how we roll out technologies. It is agreed upon from those groups we adopt or we don't adopt best practices. Like I said, new technologies coming in, new software packages, documentation templates, those types of things. It's a great group. And I find that that collaborative group that we came together with that originally formed North Country Healthcare was a big part of that. On the side of looking at burnout, we had some great physicians that have gone out, looked at this, have gotten additional training and are part of a group that are working on burnout on all levels, not just on a provider level, but all levels. And I can't, I can't say enough good things about the work that they're doing. It's interesting when we talk about an EHR migration, I used to tell people it's, it's like I take your PC and I give you a Mac or I take your Mac and I give you a PC and I say, okay, now go about doing what you normally do every day. And there's enough change in it. And it's still a technology. It's still going to print to the printer. It's still going to get on the internet and that kind of stuff, but there's enough change to it that you have to think about almost everything you're doing because the workflow changed, this changed, order sets changed, you name it on the Mac's PC. And somebody said to me once, he goes, I, I think that's, that maybe a little bit too stark of a contrast. It's not like you're changing everything. It's more like you take the iPhone and you give them a, an Android device. It's not as quite as jarring of a transition. But one of the things I always tell people is we did our physician satisfaction survey the day after, or like the week, couple of weeks after the migration. And the reason we did that was to get the benchmark because I knew the benchmark would be as bad as it ever was going to be at that moment. And then you could, you could grow from there. And it's, it does take a hit because it's a lot of change to somebody's workflow at the, at that point when you make that, that initial change. And then it gets better every day after that. Well, we came together as three hospitals. So the EMR forced us to align some of those best practices that were individual best practices and to standardize on those as the EMR came into play. And I think that also caused an additional level of disruption and challenges because they had a way of practicing it and they wanted to adopt the new software to those practices. But then they also had to get together and collaborate and work together to come back with a solution that would meet the needs of all. 
I think they're getting there. We're in the optimization mode now, and the collaborative efforts have been, have been great. The positions have actually been phenomenal. We'll get back to our show in just a minute. I'm excited to have Meditech as a partner of This Week Health. They were a great partner of mine when I was CIO at St. Joe's, and we ran 16 hospitals on their platform. And I love their vision for the future. EHRs have the power to transform care, and with Meditech Expanse, you're going to have all the tools you need to monitor at-risk patients, use genetic data for better decision-making, and deliver prompt, personalized care on the go. CY Expanse quickly ascended the class rankings to become one of healthcare's top two overall software suites. Visit ehr.meditech.com to learn more. All right, back to our show. All right, so the next article is hospitals to experience financial strain over the next decade. And this is a report that said telehealth is expected to resume its climb by 2032, account for 27% of all evaluations and management visits. Talk to me about telehealth in, in your area. So where were you at prior to pandemic and where are you at post-pandemic with regard to telehealth? Well, I think like many, we were we were virtually nowhere prior to the pandemic, very minimal use. And then we skyrocketed and then we've sort of settled down. I would say that we're probably not like a lot of the industry. They're somewhere seem to be around 18 to 20%. We're probably 10 to 12%. Behavioral health being one of the largest, I think, in that group. It seems to fit that service line extremely well. But there are some. And we do have some challenges. I think there's a, a digital equity problem in the North Country where we live. There's a lot of challenges with being able to reach people via what, what they have for availability for content. Plus, also a, a level of comfort. They just aren't as familiar with the technology. When we have rolled these out, we've had to spend some time working individually with patients to get them on board. What was a, a better fit? They're much better than they were before, but it, it's been challenging. When we talk about telehealth, we talk about anything from phone all the way up to video to remote patient monitoring in the home and that kind of stuff. Where on the continuum do you guys fall? We're doing some of all, probably the majority of it would be video visits. We do do some phone visits, which were permitted. Some remote patient monitoring is definitely in place in a few areas. And we do a lot because we're critical access hospitals. We also do leverage third parties. We have an affiliation with Dartmouth Hitchcock. They do a lot of remote services for us in terms of support for trauma patients, ED patients that are in there, as well as some psychiatric consults. Yeah. So this story, this story is in healthcare finance and healthcare finance news, healthcarefinancenews.com. Let me give you a couple of excerpts. Hospitals will experience a slowing inpatient admissions, but an increase in the length of adult inpatient stays, the latter being fueled in part by long COVID-19 and a rise in chronic conditions, according to a new report by Vizient and its subsidiary SG2. This will lead to greater financial strain due to the rise in patient acuity over the next decade that will outpace inpatient volume and impact patient length of stay. Fueled in part by COVID-19 and its lingering effects, healthcare organizations can potentially expect an increased number of patients with more complex conditions, creating capacity constraints that may require new strategies for patient care delivery. And so when I read and hear something like that, I hear that the pandemic may have shifted things, the way we think about care, the way we deliver care, but there was also some trends already in place and in play, which is the baby boom generation has impacted everything. The, the sale of strollers back when they were actually having the babies to 
the sale of baseball bats as their kids were getting ready to play baseball all the way through now they're impacting healthcare as they're getting older. So there's some trends that were already in play. There's some trends that were impacted by COVID. And I think that the two are sort of coming together to say, hey, we've got, we've got a challenge. We may need to look at different ways of different ways of delivering care moving forward. And some of those things, the natural thing is to just gravitate towards telehealth or remote health and all those technologies. When you talk about the digital divide, it's interesting in your area, because I'm looking at your background, it's mostly trees, trees <laughs> and mountains. I mean, it, is there a significant digital divide in, in across North Country? There is, there is. I truly believe there is. And, and it's cultural to some extent. But yeah, there's some technology challenges. Coverage for things like cell phones are very limited in spots, getting better. There's a lot of initiatives to deliver technology and be able to provide the connectivity that's required for some of these. But there are challenges. And like I said, there's also uh, an educational gap on, on how to embrace it. But I think, I think we're closer than we were definitely two or three years ago. And things have moved. And there's been a lot of infrastructure build out and that continues to occur. I'm part of a couple of groups that are sort of spearheading those in terms of getting it. But I do agree entirely that we are going to be faced with some, some significant challenges going forward on, the, on volumes of inpatient care. I'll be curious to see how hospital at home comes into play. I think that there's an opportunity there, but it's all based on reimbursement and what's sustainable, to be honest with you, Bill. I, I, don't, know, I don't know what it's going to look like. It's in its early stages. When I think about the, so a couple of directions I want to go here. One is the digital divide. Is that something that, I would assume that's something that gets addressed by the state or by the federal government. I mean, that's one of the areas to look at because the financial model of putting up towers and whatnot in your area is probably not there for the Verizons and the AT&Ts of the world. And the state government and whatnot has to probably step in and push that initiative, I would think. They do. They do. I think a lot of it comes from the state. A lot of it comes from federal subsidies that'll go into play because there's just not a market to be able to address it there, to be able to justify the cost. I think that there's a significant push out to at least get some of the local towns. Now, we still have towns in the North Country that do not have, have high-speed connectivity. Therefore, populations that are served by those towns certainly wouldn't. Yeah, that's... That's definitely something we need to address in order to not only move healthcare forward, but also education and all sorts of other things that are available on the internet. It's just amazing to me the amount of education that's available on the internet today. I can attend MIT classes. I can download all sorts of just great content that used to only be available to a select few, but now is available to anybody in, in North Country at this point. Pretty amazing. Yeah, my son is in his second year of college and has never stepped foot on a campus. It's just, it's just impressive to think about what's available. Yeah, I got my MBA without stepping foot on a campus. It is interesting how things are changing. But when you think about technology outside of telehealth, and this is, I'm going to stretch you a little bit. Outside of telehealth, I mean, how do you approach this change? How do you talk about the technology that's going to be required to approach this change in the coming years with higher acuity and volumes? I, I think it's I think it's going to be a real test for healthcare and the creativity behind it. I think there's going to clearly be some casualties. We've seen a lot of casualties already of hospitals, particularly community or rural hospitals that are challenged and have closed. But I think you've got to get creative 
on your patients and the relationships with them on delivering the technology and work with them. And, and honestly, Bill, that could be helping deliver technology to the home, which is why I'm very, very happy that we have our home health branch because we can leverage that in some of these cases. I think you have to be very, very close to that patient population. I also think you need to look at it, new and creative ways for revenue generation, things that may be aligned with your organization. I mean, we, we haven't it, it North Country Healthcare, we haven't had a durable medical equipment line, but we are now. We're doing centralized warehousing so that we can do distribution to all of our facilities. We have, I think, 22 different locations now, very, very expensive to get deliveries to. So we're going to take that onto ourselves. But another challenge we have, and I think it's it's prevalent everywhere, you have a challenge with recruiting staff, providers, nursing staff, but we have a huge housing shortage. There, there's still, the market is just there's no there's no inventory available. We could be looking at doing investments in real estate to try to uh, to try to offset some of those costs or to lure people in transportation services. You could open up gyms. There's a lot of different things that we're I think we're going to have to look at in order to generate revenue that are aligned with our healthcare mission. Wow, that's really interesting to think about the different paths that you can can take there, and it does lead us to one of the other stories here. The next story we had, and I think I'm going to skip it, which is 12 hospitals scaling back care. And uh, the reason I'm going to skip it is because that really lends itself to what you were saying. I mean, there's a lot of decisions you have to make in terms of what can we deliver and where do the financials really make sense? Where do they not make sense? And we are seeing a lot of health systems look at it and go, you know what, even on things like, like labor and delivery, they're saying, look, there's another hospital down the street that can do labor and delivery. We're going we're gonna to stop doing that. But the creativity that's going to be required in areas like yours, in terms of reaching that population, thinking outside the box, durable medical goods, gyms, and those kind of things, that's interesting to me. Going into the homes, though, that's, that really is a... Um, that really is a challenge. We started that process back in 2012, 2013 in Southern California. And what we found is that once you've gone into one home, you've gone into one home. And once you've worked with one patient in the home, you've worked with one patient in the home. And so we put, we create, we had a partnership with a startup and they were playing around with different technology in terms of how to put it in the home that a person could step on a scale, it would report back and it would give us all this information. And we found a handful of, uh, we, we learned something every day we were doing this. One is you can't put an iPad, no matter how much it's locked down, you can't put it in the house and expect it not to move. They just move. And so our first model iteration of this, the iPad collected all the information and then moved all the information up into our environment. And invariably, at least two or three times a week, somebody had moved the iPad, somebody had not plugged it in, unplugged it, what you name it, something happened. So we had troubleshooting stuff around that. The other thing we found is that the most important thing in some of these at-home things is the call center. Because a lot of these people are isolated and lonely and just want to talk to somebody. And so we would end up with 20, 30-minute phone calls. And we, we learned that it was important to call these people on their birthday and just say, hey, notice it's your birthday, happy birthday. It's, it's so interesting, the things we learned going into people's homes that we didn't anticipate prior to doing that. It is such an interesting advancement for us. 
Yeah, I, I think our home health and hospice agency has done a fantastic job, and and they are really excelling this year. The volumes that they're seeing, they they are one area that's just increasing exponentially, and and it's impressive. I think somewhere in there lies what the future will hold, is in that care delivery model. I agree with you on the technology being in there, and, and a lot of that telemetry that you collect, I'm not really sure how you're going to digest, consume, and put that into meaningful data for an already overburdened provider workforce that that has to look at this. They're, they're just, you have to somehow use the technology to automate some of their workflows and then to also take some of that information and present it to them in a way that's meaningful as opposed to this volume of additional data. Now, I'm going to pull from this last article, and we talked about this last week, how are the leading CIOs dealing with the perfect storm in healthcare? And we didn't get to the bottom half, which is the half I want to talk to you about. And so they talk about collaboration with industries being something we're going to see more and more from healthcare. And the second thing they talk about is wellness solutions. And you touched on this a little bit. When we think about wellness, how do you think about wellness in, in your market? How are you addressing wellness in your market? Are we talking, Bill, about patients or are we talking about provider wellness, well-being, or everything as a whole? Yeah, I'm more thinking in, in alliance in terms of patients and the population that you serve. So we've got some ACO initiatives that we've worked with to try to, to, to look at some of the data that's out there, claims data, but also social determinants, and try to bring that information together. And that's all that's all very, very helpful. And I think that's a positive move, not because of the reimbursement model, but I think generally in wellness of a patient, understanding the entire patient. But going forward, some of the wellness initiatives that we've put into place are part of our primary care rollout. So when we have primary care, we are working with those patients. We're trying to be proactive. But it's a, it's unique to each patient, to be honest with you, from what I've seen. My experience clinically, of course, would be limited, but just seeing the rollout of how we've done it, it's patient to patient, family to family. And I think it's the only way to truly get wellness completely covered. So when they talk about collaboration with industries, I think this is easy when you're talking about Boston, Chicago, and those kind of things. You have a lot of employers and whatnot you're collaborating with. You have a lot of industries that are looking to perfect their technology before they go to market and those kinds of things. What do partnerships look like in rural America? For us, they're very limited. The populations, they might be good for pilot tests, and we've worked with Veditech to do a lot of pilots on new software and new models that we've looked at, service services that they're offering. And we've been sometimes on the on the leading edge of that. But those are small rollouts, those are small pilots. Real beneficial collaboration with industries outside of group purchasing organizations or things like that are very, very limited here. It's interesting. When I moved to New Hampshire, our first year of marriage, and I started looking for jobs, I realized living in Wolfboro, I was going to, my wife had a job in Alton Bay, New Hampshire, which is, it's just beautiful area right on Lake Winnipesaukee. It's just amazing, but it is a, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a vacation spot, right? So all the people from Boston come up and they have places on the lake and it's just, it's gorgeous in the winter and the summer it's, it's gorgeous, but the town swells to like six or seven times its size during the summer as it is in the winter, even though they have skiing and that kind of stuff. But I learned early on that for me to get a job, I was going to have to drive at least 45 minutes from there. If the job wasn't going to be construction or, you know, or working in the grocery store or that kind of stuff, I was going to have to drive 45 minutes for a tech job or something to that effect. 
And uh, I, I just want to give people a picture of what we're talking about here. When you, when you say partnering with industry, a lot of the employers and whatnot in that area are, are not significant, large employers. There's probably a handful, but there's not, there's not a Boeing. There's not a, there's not a massive employer. I remember defense contractors were big back when I lived there, but I would have to go all the way down to Portsmouth, which would be an hour and a half drive to get down to the defense contractors. And it's just a different, it's a different thought process of how do you deliver care to that population and how do you get them connected? And because we know that social determinants, one of those things is employment. One of those things is education. And so there's an awful lot associated with wellness and the challenges of reaching that community. I'll give you the final word here and then we'll, we'll be out. No, that's, that's great. No, we're, you're absolutely right. In Northern New Hampshire, we are the largest employer. That's it in the entire county, our collection of facilities, that is it. So you get an understanding of how important the hospitals are to this area. And the industry is very limited. There's some pockets of it, but most of it's based on tourism. Definitely a challenging area, but it's a great place to be. As you stated before, it's a beautiful, beautiful part of the country. And we've got a lot of great things that we can do here. So it's a privilege to be here, to be honest with you. Yeah, and it looks, it does. (laughs) Anyone who's not watching on YouTube is not getting the picture. You're actually north of the White Mountains, aren't you? We, We are. We are. We have one hospital that sits on the Canadian border. Wow. We used to go to the outlets at the White Mountains. I don't know if those are still there, but the LL Bean store was uh, was something else. It was. Yep. That's still there. Keep going north. We're another 45 <laughs> minutes north of there. Keep going north. I didn't. I assume that was the end of the country, but evidently there's a whole world just above the uh, White Mountains. That's there fantastic. Daryl, I want to thank you for your time and thank you for the conversation and thank you for uh, the work that you're doing up there. Bill, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure and it's always great to listen to you. What a great discussion. If you know someone that might benefit from our channel from these kinds of discussions, please forward them a note, perhaps your team, your staff. I know if I were a CIO today, I would have every one of my team members listening to a show just like this one. It's conference level value every week. They can subscribe on our website, thisweekhealth.com. They can also subscribe wherever they listen to podcasts, Apple, Google, Overcast. You get the picture. We are everywhere. Go ahead, subscribe today. We want to thank our Newsday sponsors who are investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Those are CrowdStrike, Proofpoint, ClearSense, Meditech, Cedar sinai Accelerator, TalkDesk, and Dr. First. Thanks for listening. That's all for now.